That is so awesome. Would you bow with me once more now as we prepare to enter God's word? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word once more. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that as we dive into your word, would you continue to speak to our hearts through it? I pray that you would speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the kids can go to children's church, in case they didn't know that already. Today we are continuing in our series entitled Every Wind of Doctrine, taken from the passage in Ephesians, which speaks to that growing up in maturity in the faith, one of the results of that will be that we will no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but instead we will be firm in the faith and our knowledge of it and secure in the pure gospel. Today we're looking at part five, adding law to grace. Many years ago, a pastor discovered upon waking one Sunday morning that following a tremendous windstorm that night, The roads to his local church were blocked, and the only way that he could reach his church in time to preach was to skate there on the river, which was right beside his house and later on right beside the church. And so that morning he decided he would lace up his skates and skate to church, and so he did. When he arrived, the elders of the church, however, they were horrified to discover that their preacher should violate the Sabbath by skating, which they considered a frivolous recreation. So after the service, they called an emergency meeting to address the matter. And so the pastor explained to them that, well, it was either skate to church or not get there at all. While still not satisfied by this explanation, the debate continued amongst the elders if skating could be considered transportation or recreation. And so... Finally, as they went back and forth, the head elder asked the pastor this question. Well, did you enjoy it? (laughs) And when the pastor thought for a moment and finally replied, no, he had not enjoyed it, the elder replied, all right, we'll let it slide. Now, we might chuckle at that little story, but it highlights for us something, something that, though this story is old, is also not new. This is the struggle that God's people have had for hundreds and even thousands of years with legalism. Legalism. Now, legalism by definition is this. It is the strict following of the letter of the law rather than following the spirit of the law. So legalism is following the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. And the motivation behind legalism is almost without exception the insidious belief that we can somehow earn acceptance and favor with God by keeping the letter of the law. And when you continue to drill down into its rotten core, you will discover this. Legalism teaches that salvation And eternal life in heaven is not received as a free gift of grace through faith, but is instead earned by our good works. Now, in Israel, during the life of Christ and the ministry of the Lord Jesus, 
Legalism had become and had been for some time the dominant belief and teaching spread by the Jewish religious leaders, most infamously by the group known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they took obeying the letter of the law to its most absurdly scientific extremes. Commentator William Barclay explains a few of what those extremes look like If you think that the elders um, nitpicking over skating on Sunday was kind of a little bit crazy, well, the religious leaders took it even beyond that. Barclay says, take, for instance, the case of carrying a burden. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 21 says, take heed for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day. So if you were to not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, a burden had to be defined. What was a burden? And so the scribes defined a burden as food equal in weight to a dried fig. Dried fig, not very big. Enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Milk enough for only one swallow. How big is your swallow? (laughs) Honey enough to put upon a wound. Oil enough to anoint a member. Water enough to moisten an eye salve and so on and so on. Every possible thing that could be considered a burden had to be measured down to its smallest amount. It had to then be settled whether or not on the Sabbath a woman could wear a brooch, whether a man could wear a wooden leg or even dentures, or would it be considered carrying a burden to do so? Who here have carried a couple of burdens (laughs) to church today? Could a chair or even lifting a child be considered a burden? And so on and on the discussions and the regulations went. Now I'm sure, as I said, if ice skating had existed in ancient Israel, it would have been on their list too. Now Jesus continually, continually, we read through the Gospels, he butted heads with the Pharisees and the religious leaders over these exact issues. And he confronted their hypocrisy on every turn. In fact, if we, if we read through the Gospels and write down who Jesus saved all of his harshest words for, all of his criticisms, it was for the religious leaders, for the Pharisees in particular. He said things like, you brood of vipers. He called them hypocrites, repeatedly. He called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. At one point, he even called them sons of the devil. He indicted them for leading the entire nation astray in their legalism as well. And he said that they would go many miles to make one convert, and in so doing would make that convert twice the sons of hell than they were. He is not sparing anything here when he is harshly indicting these religious leaders for their legalism. Again and again, in contrast, Jesus taught, That it was not by doing the works of the law that anyone could be saved, but that salvation could only be received by placing faith in him. Now subsequently, sometime after Jesus had died on the cross, rose from the grave, and ascended back into heaven, you would think that Jesus' followers, his disciples, and the new church that had been birthed in his name would have been crystal clear about this central truth of the gospel, that it is not by works, but by faith that we are saved. But as we turn now to Acts chapter 15, and I would invite you to turn there with me this morning, 
As we turn to this story in Acts chapter 15, we discover that there in the brand new church, there was still much confusion about this exact issue. There in verses 1 and 2 of Acts 15, we read this. Certain men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and elders about this question. Now, we know from later on in the passage in verse 5 that those certain men who had gone there and were teaching this, these certain men were converted Pharisees. Now, we do know that some Pharisees did come to believe that Jesus was, in fact, their Jewish Messiah. We know that the Apostle Paul himself was a converted Pharisee. However, though some of these Pharisees did come to believe that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, that is the key word. They believed that he was the Jewish Messiah. He was only for them. He was not for the Gentiles. Now, in case you don't know who the Gentiles are, the Gentiles were literally everyone else, including most of us here this morning. Anyone who was not born of the, of the Jewish nation, circumcised in under the covenant of Abraham, could not be considered a Jew. Therefore, you are a Gentile. You are on the outside. Jesus, the Messiah, came for the Jews. This was their thinking. And so, according to this thinking, they reasoned, that in order for a Gentile to come under the Jewish Savior, to be saved by him, they would first need to become Jews, which required circumcision. So in other words, they lined up a whole list of required works according to the law that the Gentile believers would then have to do before their faith in Jesus would do them any good. Now we need to stop at this point so we can understand like crystal clear, understand the full gravity of what was at stake here. Because those Jews were saying that without circumcision, Gentiles could not be saved no matter how much they believed in Jesus. You could have great faith in Jesus as the, as the Messiah, but if you will not get circumcised, you cannot be saved. And in teaching this, they were going beyond the actual facts of their Jewish history. Because at this point, they were relying on their modern, at that time, modern Jewish tradition and religious practice to establish a theology and a doctrine that was, in fact, false. Because they'd gotten a key part of it wrong. They'd forgotten that circumcision was given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant that God had already made with him. You see, when God made the covenant with Abraham, it was one where he initiated it. He, in, in words, promised to make Abraham a great nation and that through his descendants, all nations of the world will be blessed through him. God made this verbal covenant. And Abraham, through faith, believed God. He believed him with his heart. And, and the Bible says that through faith, it was accredited to him as righteousness. And so he was righteous before God, not through some physical act that he had done, but through faith. He believed. And so, as a sign to essentially seal this covenant that they had made with, with the word of God, Abraham agreeing by faith that what God had said was true and he would follow accordingly, 
Circumcision was given as the sign of this covenant. However, it is only a sign of the covenant. A sign. It is not the source. But the Pharisees turned the sign into the source itself. They were saying the act itself was required as a condition and a prerequisite for salvation. Now, Paul had already taught the new believers at Antioch that salvation was received through faith in Christ alone by grace alone. A finished and free gift that they could add nothing to. It's done. All we can do with it is receive it. But now, having taught the believers in Antioch, having helped establish the church, and he's gone for only a short while, here these Pharisee types come in behind him and begin completely undermining the gospel. And it's no wonder when we read in verse 2 that this brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute with them. And the English language here doesn't really do justice to what this sharp dispute in the Greek means. It's, it's basically, it was one step away from fisticuffs. Like, this was heated. So, when there's a sharp dispute going on here, the idea is like, you've got a room full of people, and they're not backing down on their standards. There is harsh words, there's sharp words, they're shouting. Anything just short of fisticuffs is what this sharp dispute about. So, we see here, Paul is seeing this as a major, major issue. He is not going to back down. And so, the Pharisees clearly are not backing down either. So they need a neutral arbitrator to to solve this problem. And so, the very first church council is called, that we know of. The very first official church council elders in Jerusalem was called to convene to this matter. And here, Peter makes his appearance. In fact, this is the Apostle Peter's final appearance in the book of Acts. And he makes his final appearance with his signature bold style. And we read his words in verse 7. And we'll read through to verse 9. Peter says, After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, saying, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. What Peter is doing here at the outset is he's reminding the council of elders of his own experience, particularly with the household of Cornelius. The the day began with a vision up on top of the roof where he sees unclean animals and clean animals according to the Jewish dietary laws. And, go, and he hears a voice saying of the unclean animals, take, kill, and eat. And Peter says, I could never do that. I'm a good Jew. I would never defile myself. But God makes it clear that what he has made clean, man can no longer consider unclean. He, he abolishes this old part of the dietary law. And so Peter, now having to bear the weight of this, as a good Jewish boy, he'd never eaten what was considered unkosher. He'd never had pork or ham or bacon and all those delicious meats that I'm so thankful that the Lord has allowed for us to eat. And, and, and I know all of the hog producers in the area are thankful for it too. But now he's grappling with this. He's never eaten it before. He's never defiled himself. And then the Spirit of God has sent Cornelius, a Gentile, to come because he is desiring to hear the gospel. 
And so he comes, and Peter can't help but share it with him. He shares with him the good news about Jesus. Cornelius, with joy, receives it. He believes. He receives the Holy Spirit. The sign is manifest through speaking in tongues. He's baptized. And so now Peter has this moment where he realizes God is doing something far bigger than just Israel. This isn't just for the Jews. It is for the world. And it's beginning to light up in his mind and his heart. This is what he's referring the council back to. And he reminds them that it was God who did this, not Peter. This wasn't some man-made idea. This was God's idea. And he says that it was God who chose the Gentiles to hear and believe. And that it was God who alone knows the heart had shown his full acceptance of the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit. And it was God who did not discriminate but it was God who purified their hearts by faith. And so when God had done all of this, who were they to question it or to add another condition on top of it? And so in verse 10, Peter continues, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Now, what exactly did Peter mean by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither uh, we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? What did he mean by this analogy? Well, think of a yoke. Oxen would be yoked together. It's something uh, heavy. This is the analogy that he's using. And he's saying, with this analogy, he's pointing to the grim reality that the law, the yoke, the burden of the law was so heavy And its requirements so utterly impossible to keep perfectly that not even the super-religious Pharisees could be saved by it. The law simply could not save them. All that the law could do is, like a mirror, reveal just how sinful they were and crush them under its weight. So why then would they make Gentiles do something that even the the super-religious elite Pharisees themselves couldn't uphold perfectly? Despite all of their nitpicking, despite all of their little rules and details, even they couldn't uphold it perfectly because they broke at every turn the spirit of the law. And so in the same way, we must ask ourselves, why would we as the modern-day church... Why would we insist upon someone needing to somehow be cleaned up before they could come into church? Or, or that you need to get your life in order before you can be here to hear the gospel? To put conditions on the front end is entirely wrong. There should be no conditions. Because we all come in need of the same thing. Not one of us, no matter how clean we think we are, are sinners. We all need this same gospel of grace that only Jesus can provide. To add any other conditions on the front end is is entirely wrong. We should have no barriers to people hearing the gospel because we all need exactly the same thing. And that is what Peter is saying. Even we Jews couldn't be saved by this. So why would we say, Gentiles, you need to keep these parts of the law before you can be saved by the grace of Jesus? James chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. So think about that. Kids, disobey mom just once or dad. You're listening, right? Good. Swear just once. 
miss church just once, break the Sabbath just once, lie just once, lust just once, steal just once, gossip just once, and on and on and boom, just once, you're guilty of breaking it all. So even a 99% perfect person, and I know there's a few of you here this morning, even a 99% perfect person will be justly sentenced by God to an eternal judgment separated from him. He can be 99% perfect and fail at just one point and you will still receive the judgment that that sin and rebellion against your maker deserves. Henry Moorhouse, famous pastor from a previous era, he told a story once of a very religious lady, very religious, very proper, very pious, and she had gone to church all of her life. All of her life, she would not miss a Sunday. However, in all of that, she had been deceived by the lie of legalism. After preaching a sermon, a very pointed sermon on this exact subject in her church, she came to him afterward and asked him, I just can't see how a person who has broken just one of the commandments can be as bad as another one who has broken five or six or even all of them. And so Moorhouse explained to her that God had actually given only one law, which consisted of ten parts. And so he held out his watch as an example, and he said, Look at this watch of mine, he said. If you counted all of the cogs within my watch, you would find many cogs. However, if you ruin just one of the cogs and left all of the other parts in perfect condition, would that watch work? Well, no, it wouldn't. It would still be broken. The woman was kind of getting it, but not quite. And so he went on to give another analogy. He said, suppose you're hanging over a cliff, suspended by a chain with ten links. If someone took a hammer and smashed every single one of those ten links, where would you go? To which the woman replied, well, to the bottom of the canyon, of course. And Morehouse continued, but what if that person split only one link in the chain? What would happen then? To which the woman replied sharply, why? It would be just as bad. I'd still fall and be killed. And at that exact moment, her eyes got big. And she suddenly had that light bulb moment where it made sense. James 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, one link of the chain breaks. The net result is the same. We fall and we die. Returning to Peter, what he is saying is that if we are to earn salvation by keeping the law, then we all, Gentile or Jew, it doesn't matter, all would be crushed by it and doomed for eternity. And so, with that as the backdrop, he continues in verse 11 to then emphatically, emphatically underline and declare the good news. Is it like this? No! We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. And so, my friends, that is good news today. And the great news is this, that doing better and trying harder and being nicer cannot save us. It cannot change us. It can't purify our hearts. It is only through the grace of our Lord Jesus that any of that can be accomplished. It is only through him that our hearts can be purified by faith. And it's why it's called a free gift. 
A gift isn't, it's not a gift if it's something you have to pay for, right? It's only a gift if it's free, if there's no strings attached. Because that's the reality. This is a gift that we can't earn and we certainly don't deserve. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards us. All we can do is receive it. Timothy Paul Jones shares the following story. He writes, Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. Now I am sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated that adopted child into the family of their other biological children. And so after a couple of rough years, they decided to dissolve the adoption. And so as a result, we ended up adopting her ourselves, an eight-year-old girl. For one reason or another, when our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they would take their biological children with them, but they would always leave their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this would happen because she had done something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. And so by the time that we adopted her as our daughter, She had seen many pictures of Disney World, and she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades, but when it came to passing through the gates of that magic kingdom, she had always been on the left left on the outside looking in. And so once I learned this, I made it my immediate goal that we would take her to Disney World. Now, what I didn't expect was that upon announcing these plans, was that the prospect of visiting this dream world produced in her a stream of downright devilish behavior. And in the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she began to do things that she had never previously done. She she stole food when a simple request would have gained her the snack. She lied when it would have been far easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies just multiplied. A couple of days before our family was to head to Florida, I pulled our daughter onto my lap to talk through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she said. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? Well, that thought hadn't even crossed my mind, actually. But her downward spiral suddenly started to make sense. She knew that she couldn't be good enough to earn her way to the Magic Kingdom because she had tried and failed that test several times before and so now she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. Now in retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment, I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, well, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something that we're going to do as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and now rimmed with tears. Are you a part of this family? Again, she nodded. Well, then it's settled. You're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and wrong, but you are part of this family, and we're not leaving you behind. And so we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy. 
but her month-long facade of rebellion had dissolved. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, I held her, and I asked her, so how was your first day at Disney World? And she closed her eyes and she snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. And after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly and said, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That's the message of God's grace. It's not because we're good. It's because we belong to him. We are his children by faith. And we are adopted as sons and daughters of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And one day we will be entered into the truly magical kingdom of eternity. Not because we're good, but because we belong to him and he paid the price for our entrance with the blood of his own son. James 1.18 says, He chose, again, God, He chose to give birth to us by giving us His true word, and we, out of all creation, become His prized possession. Prized possession. My friends, salvation isn't a reward you can achieve by being good enough. It's the eternal gift you receive from your Heavenly Father when, by faith, you believe in Jesus to forgive your sins, He purifies your heart. He becomes your Savior and Lord. Heaven becomes yours because by faith you are His. God's treasured, prized possession. So today, if you are here, you, through faith in Jesus, are His beloved Son. You are His precious daughter. And now I know many of you have already put your faith in Jesus years ago for some of you. But perhaps since that moment, you've gone on living your life as though you still need to earn your Heavenly Father's approval by your good works. Well, I want you to know today something very, very important. Your Heavenly Father already approves of you. Why work for something that you've already received? You're... To be approved of by God is not contingent on your works or your good behavior. He already approves of you. He already loves you, not because of what you've done, but because of what he did on the cross. That is where he proved his love. That is where, through the death of Jesus, we can rest secure in our position as a child of the king, already approved of, already loved, And so now, free from the need to strive for his approval, free from the need to strive for salvation, free, in fact, from guilt and free from shame and free from any of the snares of legalism, we are now free to truly love him in return. And so now, we love and obey him not out of fear, not out of some some sense of duty or drudgery or because if we don't, we're going to be on the outs. No, we do it because he is such a good father who has already said we are secure in his family, secure in his love. Now live in that security. Live in that freedom. Live fully for your father because of what Jesus has already secured for each one of us. So let me encourage you today, embrace the freedom 
Embrace your position and live fully for him in freedom. As the word says, whom the Son sets free are free indeed. And now today, some of you who may be younger, maybe you're a teenager or a child here today, and maybe up until now, you've been thinking that you have to be really, really, really good before God will love you. I know I've thought that before, but I want you to know that he already loves you just as you are right now. You don't have to be better or try harder. You don't have to go home and have a perfect day before God will love you. He already loves you. And so I want to just tell you, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet to forgive your sins and become your Savior, I want to invite you to do that even today. Because remember, God is the only one who knows your heart. So he knows your heart right now. He sees you. He hears you. And even in the quietness of your heart, he will hear your prayer. So I want to invite you to bow with me and let's pray together. If you're a child here today who wants to pray this prayer for the first time, let me lead you. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And so forgive my sins. Come into my life. Be my Savior and my Lord. Thank you. And now, Lord, I want to pray for anyone here today who prayed some version of that prayer many years ago, saying, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me. Come in my life. I pray, Lord, that right now you would just break off any of those trappings of legalism, those snares that we've still bought into some of the lies of, where they hang on and they cling to us. You want us to be free of them so that we can live fully and freely for you not striving for your approval, not trying to prove something or to earn something because you've already said it's all yours. I'm not holding anything back from you. Salvation, the free gift of grace, and all of my eternal rich inheritance are already yours by faith. And so, Father, I pray that today you would just show us this freedom that we have and that this freedom doesn't mean that we now go off and live by the flesh, but instead it's a freedom to live more and more by the Spirit knowing that in you and through you we have this amazing freedom to live as children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and that we know that one day we will enter your eternal kingdom without fear, without reservation, knowing that this has already been secured through the grace of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this in your name. Amen.